another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode in the Year of Polygamy series, where we seek to try to understand and contextualize the practice of Mormon plural marriage and help our listeners understand um, kind of what it means to our history, to our doctrine, and to our people, both in the past and the present. And so I'm so excited for this episode. We're going to be covering a big topic today, one that is going to involve additional research on your part, but we're going to kind of give you an intro on one of the most fascinating characters in early Mormon history, and that is Heber C. Kimball. It's a name I'm sure all of you are familiar with, if you're familiar with Mormonism at all. And Heber C. Kimball is really important to the Mormon polygamy movement because he was very involved in the Mormon polygamy movement. But today it's not just going to be me. I have two fantastic, wonderful guests, and I'm going to introduce them. I have um, a good friend of mine from Sunstone, Bill McGee. Bill, can you say hello? Sure. Hi. Now tell us uh, what your interest is with this topic. Well, I've been fascinated with early church history for a long time. I have a uh, polygamist family members in my uh, in my genealogy, and trying to understand kind of what that life was like, what those experiences were like, has always been interesting to me, and as well as trying to try and deconstruct it from a doctrinal perspective, you know, does this have any anywhere merit or weight as a doctrinal position has been something I've been, you know, trying to wrestle with for quite some time. Well, awesome. We're happy to have you here. Thank you. And um, I'm excited to bring Tom Kimball from Signature Books. And that's right. I did say Tom Kimball. He has Kimball in the name. So Tom, can you say hello? Hello. How you doing? Great. Will you tell us what your interest and background is with this? Besides your fancy name, or because of your fancy name. <laughs> oh, oh, you know, this is just uh, my family stuff, and, and I love this stuff. So um, so you are related to Heber C. Kimball, is that right? Yeah, I, I'm a great-great-grandson through Valate, the first wife. Oh, you get the royalty credibility if you get the first wife. That's serious it's all, legitness. It's all bad blood. It's all bad blood. Well, we're going to get into that. So these two um, know a lot about... Heber C. Kimball. And uh, again, if you guys have sources, additional reading that you would like to point out to the listeners, we like to do that as well. So let's get into it. Do you guys want to, let's start about Heber. Not a lot is known about his his youth, uh, other than what's what's available in the biographies. But uh, he was he was born in Vermont. Uh, he, uh, the, the Book of Mormon that brought Brigham Young into church also brought uh, Heber Kimball. They were best friends and stayed best friends their whole life. And Heber would be really involved um, in the leadership of Mormonism from the beginning. But something that I was reading about Heber... Well, not from the beginning. I mean, they're converts. I mean, they're, they're later converts. Well, uh, from, from the beginning of his involvement in Mormonism. Sorry, I should have... Oh, oh yes. Now, now look, uh, they're, they're interesting characters. You know, when you look at the original 12 apostles... Uh, you know, the original 12 were sent out as missionaries. They weren't necessarily the leadership of the church. The, right. uh, the, the, the high council was the leadership of the church. And it wasn't until Joseph's death that the 12 stepped up and sort of uh, took, took on that role. But of the original 12, uh, 
you know, nine of them were either left the church or booted from the church. And, uh, Heber and Brigham are, you know, one died, uh, and then Heber and Brigham are the ones that, that stayed, uh, faithful to Joseph through thick and thin through everything. Well, let's back right. up just a little bit before they organize and let's talk about Heber finding the church. What do we know about that? Again, it's, it's the, uh, the, the Book of Mormon that, uh, Brigham Young, got his hands on is the same Book of Mormon that brought Heber Kimball into the church. Yeah, and their their experiences parallel each other pretty closely in terms of yeah. moving into the saints' communities, quickly establishing themselves as good speakers, someone that Joseph could trust. He quickly brought them into his inner circle. Um, very soon, you know, in the very first organization of the 12, which were selected by the three witnesses, um, they were they were among that first group. Thomas Marsh being the the president of that quorum, um, but they were sent off like like Tom said. They were sent off on missions, spent a lot of time, and they really developed a lot of their ability to speak, to organize, to do all those things as missionaries. I mean, when Heber went off to uh, England, he was petrified and wasn't sure that he had the skills needed in order to be able to pull that off. And that experience really gave him the kind of administrative skills that served him well later. Uh, and same with, same with Brigham. So they were, uh, they were kind of, uh, forged in that kind of fire of early, uh, early missionary work for the church. The 12 had a very different role then, as, as you know, than, than they do now, where, or Tom was saying, the high council were the administrators, they ran the church. By decree in the Doctrine and Covenants, the 12 apostles were not supposed to do anything where the church was established. They were only supposed to officiate where the church wasn't. Now, they immediately began breaking that rules by having members of the Quorum of the 12 sit on high council meetings when other members weren't there. And, and so that's kind of a fuzzy a fuzzy thing, and I think perhaps that precedent is what is used by the current quorum in order to do more administrating than than is outlined for them in the Doctrine and Covenants. So, right. to your point, I have a question about that, because when you, you guys are drawing these parallels to Heber and Brigham, and no offense to your grandfather, Tom, but when I think None of taken. Heber, I don't, I don't <laughs> see him as a Brigham. I don't see him on par with the sort of impact or leadership skills as Brigham Young, in fact. Oh yeah, you're absolutely right. They're 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 different guys. In fact, uh, Brigham often viewed Heber as his prophet. Uh, you know, he would say, um, you know, if you if you want scripture, I'll have Heber quote it, or, or I'll have Heber Heber cite it, and I'll quote it. Yeah, yeah. Heber was very much that he, he lived more in that uh, environment than Brigham did. Uh, Brigham liked to speak off the cuff, but really a lot of his more sophisticated theological thinking may not have been originated with himself. Uh, some of it, but he really relied on, on Heber for, for a lot of that, uh, perspective. Um, so, so they were kind of two sides of the coin in a lot of ways. Heber was a little more quiet in the background from an administrative standpoint and, and frankly took a lot of abuse from Brigham as everyone did. Towards the but, end, especially. Yeah, towards the, yeah. But the two of them uh, were, you know, they, they were pretty compatible in terms of, of him providing, I think, Brigham Young, some of that prophetic gravitas that he may have not naturally had. He had more of that kind of charismatic leadership ability. 
Now, look, something that's important here is that grandfathers aren't Jesus. Okay. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I find uh, Heber to be fascinating, but uh, he, he is certainly not without fault. That's for, for dang sure. Well, maybe your grandpa, but my grandpa's different. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's, there's that, more that known of us, Tom's grandpa. <laughs> yeah, there, there's that moment when uh, you, you have uh, uh, these these men and women in your life kind of brought back down to earth, and, and that they're more human than uh, than you had previously thought. And uh, Heber's certainly human and fallible. And I think polygamy is probably a one of those one of those things that really kind of brings us back to to earth with some of these folks in terms of their how they viewed it, how they participated in it, the, the, the level of or lack of support for their wives, that sort of thing. You begin right. to see the world in a different way. Well, Heber's an interesting character in the sense that, you know, uh, he had in the neighborhood of 43 wives. I believe 16 of them left him and mm-hmm. two of them died. So it, it brings the numbers down quite a bit. He only had kids through about 16 or 17 of them. He buried 18 of his kids, you know. Uh, so, yeah, I think that he saw a, a lot. Uh, but, you know, for having 43 wives, only having 55 kids, that's like a, a kid a wife almost. <laughs> you know, as a collective, they were huge families, but uh, as individually, they weren't that big. And he started, you know, polygamy later on in life, too. I mean, not super later on in life, but he had a teenage daughter when he decided to take a plural wife. But really first, before we get into this polygamy, I want to talk about him a little bit because later on I think this comes into play. Heber, like you said, Bill, he was sort of a visionary man. And in fact, he claims that he saw, he had a vision sort of the same night that Joseph Smith, re- uh, you know, received the records of the Book of Mormon from the Angel of Moroni. I mean, he was one to have dreams and sort of visions of the heavens, right? Yeah, now, now think of that vision. That's kind of interesting because uh, I, I, I've thought about this a lot. Uh, it, it, there was a, what do they call it, a heavenly ribbon uh, in the sky. And uh, here it is sounding like uh, cannons, uh, uh, cannon reports. And they watched it throughout the night. Or, or, or after it happened, they watched it sort of dissipate through the through, through a period of time. Uh, it, that didn't make a lot of sense to me. I puzzled about that for years. But that recent uh, Russian asteroid, if you if you watch the YouTube videos, you see this thing streaking through the sky like a ribbon. And then as the asteroid's breaking up and, and each of the pieces is bre- uh, breaking the sound barrier, it sounds like cannon fire. I think this is really cool. I think that's about as close as I've been able to get to a naturalistic uh, explanation of what he saw. And uh, anyway, but it is, you know, one of the great things about life is coincidence. It's fascinating. From another perspective, one of the challenges that you have very much around that time was that a willingness to believe in spiritual events. Right. And so things well, get can... seen through that filter very, very quickly, uh, you know, in a lot of group scenarios, right, where there's this big spiritual thing happening. It was very much everyone wanted it to, to be something. And so it, and so it, it was. Okay. I, I'm going to, I'm going to pull from my repertoire of Kimball stories because uh, that's a, that's a great point. Um, the the Kimball brothers met uh, at the graveyard in the 1890s, 1891, I believe, and they wanted the, a spiritual manifestation 
to to a, you know be part of this meeting. And there was this guy looking in through the gate. I don't know if you've ever been there. It's it's kind of square graveyard small and it's gated and the brothers are all in there having their meeting and this guy's looking in and one of the brothers decides it's an angel okay and so they bring this guy in to the middle of their meeting and as they're walking away you know they're they're saying to themselves uh, not to forget uh, uh the, the the scripture that says uh, uh don't don't uh, uh forget to entertain strangers for some of entertained angels don't wear uh, you know this guy was just a homeless guy <laughs> It was standing by, right? But they wanted they wanted to have a, a manifestation, and uh, and so there it was. It, it presented itself. Interesting, yeah. And and I think if you read his early life and later on in life, and especially with his wife's, it was always these visions and taking signs from things and watching things and and assigning it meaning. And unfortunately for Heber, the thing that sticks out in my mind for him is that he would not be really successful, a successful provider, right, for his family. And so let's talk, let's let's get into that with that context of him being sort of a religious visionary man. Um, he's in Nauvoo. He's a good friend of Joseph, a good friend of Brigham. And we've already talked about how he was sort of introduced to the principle before in uh Helen Mars episode, but do you guys want to tell us about this sort of this famous Abrahamic test that Heber, when Heber was first introduced to the principle? It, it's a it's a secondary source. Uh, the kid who introduces it to uh, the the biography of, of Heber Kimball uh, would have been about eight at the time, and would not have been connected. So it's probably even third hand uh, is the unfortunate part. The fortunate part about it is the term Abraham, because that lets us know the the the, the lingo that they were using. And if you look at uh, DNC 132 verses 50 through 53, 54, Joseph uses the term Abrahamic test with regards to Emma, and so clearly with regards to testing and marriage and so forth. Uh, uh, that, that term is being thrown around. But, but the, uh, the, the folklore narrative is that Joseph told, uh, uh, Heber to bring, uh, Vlate to him, uh, to be his wife, to be a, a, a polyandrous wife. And they, they talked about it and prayed about it, and the two of them had a revelation together and came back, and Heber presented Vlate to Joseph. And then Joseph started to cry and put their hands together and said, no, you'll be together, you know, in the eternities, uh, uh, you know, worlds without end. Uh, unfortunately, it's, it, it's a, it's a tenuous story. It's, it's a third hand story, at least. I'm not saying that it didn't happen, uh, but, but it, it's not a terrific source. Well, and then it's not very long after that their daughter comes into the picture, so. Yeah, you can. You, you some some well, folks have seen that as as a as, setup. I, I I don't I don't see that as a setup. I don't think that really happened, to be honest with you. But no, what we, what did happen was the Sarah Peak Noon, and that was a year earlier. And that seems to be, uh, from a historical standpoint, you can line that right up as setting the Kimballs up for Helen Mar. Okay, will you give us some context on that? Um, I'm not sure if I agree that they were preparing him just to get his daughter but maybe we can get into that let's start let's start with his uh bringing on the first wife so heber is now married to valate 
Well, let's let's take one one second before we we go there. <clears throat> let's talk about the month. Uh, Helen Marr is is selected as a plural wife. It's May of forty three. Books should be written about May of forty three. I should write a book about May of forty three. Uh, in May of forty three, that's the month that Joseph Jackson comes back into town. It's the month that Joseph is arrested and he's he's visiting uh, in laws. Uh, it's it's the month that he marries all of the orphans in the house, and it's the same month that he marries my great aunt Helen Mar Whitney. Yes, a lot was going on for Joseph in forty three in general. 43 is a terrific year. Um, I, I'm studying William Law right now, and uh, 43 is the year that he, he switches sides or changes. And, uh, yeah, there's a lot. So in January, you have uh, Lizar Snow being tossed down the stairs, which, once again, there's like eight different sources. They're all second, third hand. It's a problematic story, right? But you have... Uh, you have that. You have uh, the Partridge sisters being married in, in, in March, remarried in May. You have the Lawrence sisters being married in May. You have uh, Helen Marr, uh, uh, Lucy Walker. And then one month later, in uh, June 23rd, you have uh, William Law recording that Joseph is telling him that if uh, that Emma is saying if he, if he can do his thing, then she's going to do hers. Uh, and Joseph Jackson refers to that as her going after William Law. No, 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 stop for husband. just a minute because I don't think we've covered that in this series. The, there's the accusation that, uh, Emma Smith threatened to have plural partners as well. And that's what you're June 23rd in William Law's diary or William, William Clayton's diary. Yes. And then Joseph Jackson confirms it independently. These guys don't know each other. Okay, so that's June 23rd, July 15th, DNC 132. Yes. That, and it's shared with William Law. It's read to the High Council in, in, in August of, of 43. And then, uh, in September, William Law's four-year-old daughter dies. Four weeks later, the, the Laws, the Smiths, and, and Hiram Smith go on this triple date. And something happened. It's October 11th because the lawsuit that William Law brings up on Joseph Smith is dated to the next day. And William Law kind of disappears from uh, positive Mormon history on, on the 11th. Uh, and then uh, you have the possible seduction of uh, Jane Law on, in, Jane Law in, on uh, the first week of November. And it's also the same week that, that Joseph gets poisoned. And Brigham Young said, Emma did it. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is, this is a great year. There's terrific <laughs> stuff going on. I mean, I mean, there's sad and heartrending things that are going on, but it's an interesting year. So yeah, you're right. 43 is a interesting piece. So we have, we have Heber introduced to the principal. There are some stories that he was not thrilled about this, that he agonized over this, that Valate, his wife, also agonized over this. And we also know that Helen Marr mentions that, you know, she, Looking back, she realizes that her father was married to someone because she remembers Sarah Peak Noon, this woman showing up at their house more, and she remembers the ba- a baby being born to her and everyone making a big deal about it. So let's talk about Sarah Peak Noon. Who who was she? Okay, Sarah Peak Noon was uh, uh, Heber Kimball's first plural wife. Heber uh, 
told Joseph, I'll marry these two spinsters. Um, that's, that'll be my in, intro to, uh, uh, plural marriage. And Joseph said, no. Uh, you'll marry, uh, Sarah. She's 31 years old. And, uh, and you're not to tell Valade about it. And in the narrative, uh, you know, Valade sees something wrong with Heber and goes and prays about it. And God reveals, yeah. uh, the, the story to her. And, and, uh, but, but whatever happened, uh, Volate becomes a convert and takes Sarah under a wing. And for the rest of their lives, they live together, uh, in the same houses. Sarah, there's a conflicting story, and if somebody can sort this out for me, I'd love it. But Sarah's husband either left her or she left him. I can't. There's competing narratives. Uh, and so she had two kids, uh, like Harriet and Elizabeth. And uh, uh, Heber had four kids with Sarah. None of them lived to adulthood except for one. He only lived to be 24. Uh, he's, uh, as I stated, uh, Heber buried 18 kids. I, I have, I have five kids. I haven't buried any. I don't know what that's like. And maybe that was the norm then. But if, if anything about my great grandfather and great grandmothers, uh, that, that's what moves me is that they were burying their kids. Oh, yeah. I mean, Presendia had what, nine children and only two of them lived to adulthood. So it was it, rough. It, same with Joseph. He had, what, nine kids and f- what, five of them lived. That's, these are tragedies. Yeah. So anyway, uh, I, 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 I'm really interested in this because, uh, uh, Harriet, uh, the daughter of Sarah Peekman, uh, her, she, she married a young man. He died. She married another guy with her sister and they both divorced him after a year. And then Harriet comes down here to American Fork. Uh, Heber had sent a, uh, Har- Harrington, uh, Harrington. Uh, Harrington down here, Frederick Harrington down here at American Fork to take care of his property. He, he, this is how this stuff goes. He's the mayor of American Fork for like 20 years and the bishop. <laughs> Consolidation of power, right? <laughs> and, uh, Harriet, uh, becomes his plural wife. And my next door neighbor, uh, Uncle Phil Harrington across the street, uh, uh, he's a great grandson. Of, of these people. So, and I live here in American Fork. So, you know, I, and, and, and I that consolidated this. the power under Heber C. Kimball, right? If you, you can look at this carefully and this happens, happens all the time. Now I want to go back to what you'd said about Valet, right? Taking Sarah under her wing. That was pretty typical of Valet. She was a yeah. strong advocate for Heber's plural wives. Heber was fairly neglectful and forgetful about the circumstances they were in, and she advocated for them all of the time to improve their circumstances, to uh, provide them with things that they needed, and uh, and, and was a, a real strong advocate for her sister wives. And uh, and uh, Now, Bill, you have to realize that I was raised in the family, and so all I, you know, I know what's in the history books that I read, and I get glowing stories from, you know, my relatives uh, about Heber. So, you know, some of the stuff I'm not, I'm not up on, and and is, you know, hurts a little bit. <laughs> yeah. But but yeah, you know, um, I think it, polygamy in general was neglectful. I mean, you had. Well, uh, that's the thing. I'm not saying that yeah. Heber was a was a bad guy. I mean. By all accounts, people really liked him. 
but the circumstances that some of his wives found themselves in was were were just awful. Um, Presendia lived in Provo in a house with, you know, the rain just ran through the roof of the sieve. I mean, she she by some accounts delivered a baby with in a rain with women standing over her with umbrellas, and then she slept with an umbrella over her baby to keep the rain off of it. And now, so Lu- Lucy was down there too, right in Provo. Yeah, Lucy, Lucy lived in Provo at the time, and that's where Presendia ended up at first before uh, Valate brought her back up to Salt Lake. Okay, well, wait, wait, wait. We're getting ahead of ourselves. So, All right, sure, cause, sure. Because my experience with him is also the same sort of stereotype that, you know, if, even if you read just Compton's book, In Sacred Loneliness, you can tell some of these women's accounts that when they were paired with Heber, life got really, really hard. And mm-hmm. um, But, I mean, by all accounts... That I have read, Heber was very kind, a kind man, but neglectful just out of circumstances. So let's talk about what happens after Sarah Peak Noon. We know that Helen Marr gets introduced. We've covered that in the Helen Marr Kimball story. But what happens next? Well, um, I'm just pulling up the thing here. Uh, he married... Let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen women in eighteen forty-four. Uh, I know that two of them were uh, the Cutlerite sisters or the Cut- Cutler sisters, and they they both got pregnant and had kids, but they stayed in winter quarters with their with their dad. Uh, there's actually kind of a cool story with regards to those kids because one of the kids came through Utah and was kind of horrified or terrified to to meet his dad and dad just wrapped his arms around him and told him how much he loved him and missed him and, and told him to go get his brother and bring him to, you know? Uh, so, you know, uh, but, but, uh, here's the interesting thing I I ran into is that, so he marries all these, these women in 44, he marries one, two, three, four, five, six in 45. And then he marries, Almost all the rest in 46 and 47. Uh, then he marries one, two, three, four, five in 56 and 57. 56. Yeah. So, and he marries no more women after 57. Well, now we know yeah. that Heber was one of the, the apostles that sort of stepped up and said to Joseph's widows, I will marry you, right? Yeah, and, and not all those went well. I mean, they were married for a short time and, and, uh, is it one of the Partridge sisters leaves him almost yeah. immediately? You know, so yeah, I mean, Sarah Lawrence also leaves him like within a year, two years. Yeah. So yeah, a lot of those, a lot of those didn't, you know, and the, the, the consistent thing in, in those was that there was, they didn't see these as love matches, right? They were just caretaker sort of roles. They're not, not seen in the same kind of romantic romantic light that we did. But pretty much Brigham and Heber went around and met all of the plural wives of Joseph and uh, divided them up between the two of them. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Stan Kimball talks about them being wards. That's the term he used. Um, and, you know, I, I'm a little, I, I don't know what to make of that because then I look at Wolf of Woodruff and he just married all these teenagers. I mean, he's 30, 38 years old, and uh, he married only one of his plural wives is his age. The rest are all 
at least 10 years younger, and then there's a slug of teenagers. So I, I don't know, man. Uh, it, it's a little hinky to me. And then Wilford Woodruff's two of his his brides, the, uh, they're coming across the plains. They start flirting with other boys, and they get caught, and those two boys thought they are going to just get whooped. They thought they were going to die. Uh, and then w- w- Wilford just uh, divorced the two, you know, as they do, just abandon them, and they go... They go do their thing. But, uh, you know, I, I don't know where the ward thing and love and lust, uh, those are all thin lines as far as I'm concerned. And I don't think we can ascribe one to any one man. I think that all of these situations, because there were so many different relationships involved, especially these church leaders who had power and authority and responsibility, they had so many women Um that that were involved with them, that it's really hard to say, you know, it's all lust or it's all, you know, compassion or charity or whatever. So well, women, women were viewed very differently, right? Um, there was this notion of women as a reward. I, I always think of this uh, dream journal that, that Heber kept that Tom talked about last year at Sunstone um, about finding himself in the next life with, some of the other brethren and Joseph greets them and asks where their wives are. You you, want to, and his response is, uh, you know, he asks them where the wives are and they said, we don't know. And he turns around and he says, well, here are thousands. Take all you want. Exactly. (laughs) Well, and and that wouldn't be his only sort of comment like that, right? (laughs) No, no. Women were seen. I mean, and this whole notion of women as a reward for faithfulness is not, uh, that doesn't end in the early church. I mean, when I was a missionary, uh, I had a mission president tell me, you know, that you can tell how faithful a missionary was by looking at his at the wife that the Lord blessed him with. Oh, man, I must have been the most faithful missionary ever. <laughs> yeah, uh, my, my husband has a similar story. They called them mission points, and they were told that if they— the harder they tracked it, the cuter their wife would be. Yeah. So women as women as reward were, and, and so if you've got that this notion of here are thousands, take all you want, then that relationship between the the men and women is uh, necessarily going to be very different than what we uh, we view those as you know today. Jo- Joseph used the term favors. He would say, "Are you keeping up on your favors?" Mm-hmm. Meaning, are you taking plural wives? So. Oh man, <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, the, 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 Joseph used to pitch uh, uh, to uh, Benjamin F. Johnson. Used to tell, used to quote the uh, parable of the ten, uh, ten talents, and tell him that you know, if, uh, to him who has ten will be given twenty. Him who has five will be given ten. And he who has one wife, uh, she'll be taken from him. Well, I did, uh, in our last episode, we talked about Brigham, and I have this great quote from Brigham where he talks about if his wives get tired out, he just swaps them for new ones. And, mm-hmm. and it's like, you know, they were, they were considered property. And in some polygamous sects today, they are still considered property. They're eternal jewels in a crown, and they're a collection. And the more you have, the more sort of eternal status you have. And so Heber had, by all accounts, this high status because he acquired a lot of wives. But let's let's. And he go was back. good friends with Brigham, right? You know, <laughs> that's what you got when you were friends with Brigham. Brigham saw everyone like that, right? He t- said he 
carried the apostles around in his pocket like he did his wives, and if he wanted to take wanted to talk with one, he'd take one out and he would have a conversation and put them back. So he did. He saw everybody kind of in that same framework, and so I don't think Heber C. Kimball was quite that bad. I think by most accounts, people um, really liked him. He was he was a you know fairly decent person within the context that women were weren't the peers of their husbands. They were, they were property. Yeah. And, and he would, uh, lecture his wives and, and, uh, uh, and he had problems. He had, uh, a, a, there was a, there was a blessing with, uh, 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 Gold, Christine Golden, apparently for a, a child blessing. And, and Heber said, uh, apparently Heber blessed the, the child that he would have all the strengths of his father's and none of the weaknesses of his mother. And other wives were in attendance and they apparently were not very happy with, with what he had said and uh, gave him a lot of uh, grief for it. And, and, and so much so that he wrote and said that the, the day would come when they would need to apologize for what they said to him. Wow. <sighs> Tom, I'm I'm interested in some of those stories. I want I want to hear more of those. Um, <laughs> no, I do. I want to hear more. Tell us more about some of these wives. Can we get into I, the, the lives of some of them? I I wish I knew it a, a lot more. Um, I I know that like the the Cutler the the two Cutler sisters, you know, they decided to stay with their dad, and they uh, uh and they died very quickly. Uh, uh, and so these sons were raised by you know, the grandpa and uh, they were actually brought, you know, one of them came through Utah and he went out and grabbed his brother and brought him back and they became, you know, faithful Latter-day Saints. I, I know that the wives lived in clutches. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was the main mansion house up on uh, 141 Main Street where the Kimball apartments are now. And behind that's the graveyard. Um, right. And uh, there were other houses that had clutches of four or five wives. Now, if, if you got to remember, though, 16 of his wives left him, and two of them died before he died. And so, really, he only had about 28 wives. And then, you know, he did pretty well financially as, you know, as a tagline with the with, uh, uh, Brigham Young. Uh, I, I, I've seen stuff where <clears throat> Brigham Young and Heber would orchestrate something and then they, they would, uh, a percentage of it would come to Heber or, or Brigham. So they right. did pretty well financially. They did, they did well. I mean, you look at the, like the dedication of the temple and, and uh, in, in, uh, was it in Kirtland? And he donated $200, which was half a year's wage. And so he had resources that were available to him. But you have to remember, the apostles were allowed to keep a percentage of all of the tithing that they collected. And so they, were, uh, they weren't they were doing bad. I mean, the notion that, that uh, these women weren't being cared for because because they didn't have the resources, uh, at least for Brigham Young and, and uh, Heber C. Kimball, that's, there's just no weight behind that. They, they were doing pretty well. Okay, so let's, let's back up to that because that's what I want to talk about. Because... Um, in all my readings and research, it actually assumes that one of the reasons why Heber didn't take care of his wives was because he lacked resources, because he was spread thin, because he was traveling. And 
you know, we do know that Brigham Young treated no some way. of his wives cruelly. Like, you know, if you, if Brigham didn't like you, you got sent to the Forest Farm Dairy House, right? So, are you suggesting that Heber? Heber was a hard worker. He was a potter, and he was when he was young. The guy knew how to put a farm together. Uh, the, the guy, uh, 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 his sons were pretty wealthy. I mean, my my great grandfather David Patton Kimball, his house up on North State Street is amazing, uh, and it's yeah. still there. It's got turrets and stuff. These guys knew how to take care of money. If they weren't taking care of the women, my suspicion was is that they were having falling. They had a falling out with them. And the problem with with this, the the problem with polygamy and and is is how do you define marriage? I mean, when Joseph Smith was marrying these people, okay, so he marries the, the the five orphans in the house, right? And Emma knows at least about the the Partridge sisters and she's chasing them around because she doesn't want them to have sex or, or, or whatever and makes their life so miserable that she essentially runs them out of the house. And so what does Joseph do? He walks up to him and says, I'm sorry. Looks like our relationship's over. Kind of a shrug. You know, these aren't marriages. A marriage is when you have a, a, an attachment to each other financially, emotionally, and... Yeah, a sense of obligation. A sense of obligation. And that wasn't going on with polygamy. And maybe it wasn't going on in America either, uh, generally. But but uh, these guys could just walk away from these women. Oh, I agree. I, they had men, nothing, men, no recourse. Men in positions of power could do that. But if we're talking about some, you know, just English saint that immigrated over and he has two wives, it was played out a lot differently. It was considered a relationship. Uh, he, uh, there's he a, there's a lot time. of accounts of uh, them just deciding it's over and walking away. I mean, that happened. That happened a lot. Oh, for at, sure. It's at the rank and file. Read, read uh, a Mormon mother uh, uh, about Tanner. What's her name? What's her first name? Uh, anyway, her, her husband just walks away from her. She has seven kids. He just walks up the front door and says, "Yeah, we're done. Bye." Mm-hmm. And that's it. No right. Recourse. Right, but you're, but what you're suggesting is that Heber treated these women, they were neglected out of malice? It's, um, it's hard to say. I don't know if you can always describe yeah. malice to that. There was, uh, he was, he was distracted and busy and there was a lot of, a lot of people to keep track of. And, uh, and frankly, Valate kept much, much better track of the, of the women than, than Heber did. Uh, and they would, they would suffer for a long time and, and then she would bring it to their attention. But you'd have these small homes, right? Or these tiny homes, you'd put four or five women in them. Each woman would have their, her own room and then like a central kitchen that they would share. Uh, but all of their children are in there too. And so, you know, in the winter or bad weather, it was just, it was insane. And all the children slept in the room with their, with their mom. And right. so it was, uh, it was different and difficult. Presendia moved 21 times from home to home. As he would buy another property, he would move her to another place. I mean, in a in a very short amount of time. So her final move, she just went, I I think I'm of age, of age now, and I don't want to move anymore. And uh, he honored that. But 21 times, and, and it was very capricious. He's just shuffling his property around, and he would shuffle his women around to caretake for the property that he had when he had it, and uh, uh, without much consideration of how that affected them. Well, I will say that in Prezindia's case, 
Um, what concerns me about this story is Prasindia was one of the people treated bad, but she was a woman of privilege considering her connections to Joseph Smith. Yeah. Now, those women were honored and it, um, in a way that women that weren't, you know, former plural wives of Joseph Smith were. So my yeah, concern is... they referred is, to them as the wives of God. <laughs> yeah, and so so even though he treated her badly... She was still afforded by the community some sort of status, some you know, um, even if it didn't have real value, and that well, makes me worry. Well, a lot of that was the... her too. Presendia is a is an, a, a one of my favorite pioneer women in terms of the spiritual gifts she had, the amount of time she spent, you know, anointing and blessing uh, the the women around her, the men around her, and and so there was these great. Uh, she was seen as as someone with a with a great spiritual gift who contributed something to the community. In addition to having been been Joseph's wife, she she had a, a very charismatic uh, gift, and and that was that was very valued in the in the community she was in. But her first her first years in winter quarters and her first several years in in Utah were miserable. So I'm I'm just doing a quick. A look at some of my sources um, here, and, and maybe at some point we got to like talk about some of the sources. But uh, her, Prescindia's son ends up being the bishop, her son Joseph ends up being the bishop of Meadow, Utah. Uh, Me- uh, Meadow, if if it's the same place as where my family comes from, it's Meadowville, and it's it's the southern end of uh, Bear Lake. It's, right. it's in Utah. That's the right. And and there's a ton of the the brothers end up there. It's, uh, um, uh, my great grandfather, uh, uh, David was up there. He was a stake president, uh, and Jay Golden was up there. And, you know, the brothers sort of built their, at least, at least these brothers did, uh, sh- sh- freighting and they made pretty good money at it. And they brought the, the, the younger brothers in as kind of slave labor <laughs> and, uh, but they did pretty good with it. And apparently she, her, her son ends up there as well. So let's talk about that. So Heber is in Utah now. You know, um, he's got, how many wives did you say he, when did he cap out on his marriages? In 56? 57. 57. 57. And now for our listeners, the last two episodes, we've been talking about 1850s Utah. So we're talking about Orson Pratt's The Seer. We're talking about uh, the territorial legislature kind of being formed. Um, This is a hard kind of really rugged time, but there's a, this huge sort of fanaticism, right? right. Um, does Heber C. Kimball get, I mean, you said he, 57, that's the Mountain Meadows Massacre year. Does Heber get sort of in this fanaticism? You know, I, I have these great quotes from Heber. You know, one of the famous ones that he said is, I think no more of taking another wife than I do of buying a cow. Um, but a lot of his quotes come that are really you know, kind of hard for me to take are ones that are telling the young men, stop getting all the pretty wives. The pretty wives are for us. So can you help us contextualize um, maybe what Heber is doing in the, in the 1850s? Um, you know, uh, you know, I'm, uh, the 1850s is tricky because, you know, that's the radical, the, the reform or the Ref, yeah. reformation. It's, a reformation. It's, it's this big revival. Yeah. Old Mormon revival time, right? They're doing a lot of, uh, you know, everybody's being rebaptized. Everybody's being recommitted. Uh, people are recommitting themselves to the principle. I mean, there, it's, it's a, it's a time of retrenchment and, and, and focus on, on bringing those, those things up. And I mean, the first kind of temple recommend interviews begin around that time. 
One of my favorite Who instituted quotes, that? Do we know who came huh? up with those? Do we know who instituted the Temple Recommend questions? That was, the, and they were very different, right? Everybody kind of had their own set. One of my favorites was Jedediah M. Grant would ask if these people were bathing once a week. Yeah. And uh, Brigham Young called him out on it, and he said, you know, I've tried that, and it's not for everyone. Right? So, <laughs> so, and we so talked about Jedediah, Jedediah Grant. <laughs> Jedediah Grant is the one that we just mentioned that went uh, to try to counter these anti-polygamy campaign rumors, and he got his letter published in the New York Herald. So that's who Jedediah Grant is. Yeah, yeah but Jedediah Grant, it, it killed him. He was He was baptizing people during the Reformation in the cold rivers and it killed him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the fanaticism was, you know, it's unhealthy. Anyway, uh, I, I was looking at the list here of, of, of Brigham Young's wives. He only marries five after 56. One, two, three, four, five, six. Oh, six after, after 56. Something happened with 56 and 57. Yeah. These guys kind of stopped. And so I, you know, there's this, there's this, rhetoric that the women could join themselves to whomever they wanted to, and that was one of the blessings of polygamy. Well, these two guys aren't doing that. Yeah, and that's only, they're only, I mean, Heber C. Kimball in 57 was only 56 years old. So he wasn't, it, but he, it wasn't but he, really health issues that were stopping him. There was something that was going on, but he was certainly physically capable of continuing. But he did marry a 19-year-old. Yeah, yeah, exactly. His last wife was 19, Smithies. And uh, he ended up, see, after he married her, he had about 19 kids after he married her. And he used to talk about uh, how how polygamy made a man more robust. <laughs> yeah, okay. I have this great quote. I can read it to you. It says, um, I have noticed that a man who has but one wife and is inclined to that doctrine soon begins to wither and dry up, while a man who goes into plurality of wives looks fresh and sprightly. Why is this? Because God loves that man and because he honors his word. Some of you may not believe this, but I only believe it, be but I not only believe it, but I also know it. For a man of God to be confined to one woman is small business. I do not know what we would do if we had only one wife apiece. <laughs> Do you like that feminist Mormons out there? That's awesome. Uh, grandpa. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, we, but we know this, right? We, and this is my problem though today is this is why I've been trying to highlight these women because even in Mormon studies and Mormon history, we like to talk about these women as a number. These women are a number and nothing else. They're, they're a throwaway number and we don't really know a lot about the women themselves. I got a number for you. Two. That's how many of Brig or Heber Kimball's sons practice polygamy. Fascinating. Tell me more about that. <laughs> That's all I know. <laughs> okay, well, someone out there has got to look into that. That's fascinating. Do we know from what wives these these boys descended from? Uh, Valet. So they would have been early on before the manifesto, I'm assuming. It, it, it was it was we, uh, William and, and David the, from, from uh, Valet. None of the other sons practice polygamy. You know why? No, that's what I wanted. Because they saw it. They saw it. Yeah, they experienced it. They didn't want it. 
Even though they're, they hear, they grow up hearing their dad saying things like this, that a man of God is loved if he's given all these women and. Yeah, they didn't, his dad, their dad didn't, wasn't raised in a polygamous household and had to <laughs> scrape for food and watch their moms try and figure out where the next meal was coming from while the kids are raising themselves. The, yeah, that's the, okay, so it, I, I look at some of the stuff as kind of cool, but it's in, in reality it's not, but, uh, you know, the older Kimball brothers kind of took the younger Kimball brothers under their wing, you know, and they all kind of ran together. And, uh, even, even the next generation down, the grandkids, they say terrific things about the brothers and the sisters and the cousins. They all love each other. Okay. So not Tom, lot, I have a question about that. a lot of them stayed that. in the church. I have a question about that. So we talked about, you were talking about how a lot of people didn't view these as actual marriages, like the way that we define marriages. But it seems to me that the siblings had a connection. So are you saying that the Kimball kids kind of, I mean, even though they came from different wives or different locations, they kind of banded together as actual siblings? Oh, heavens yes. Okay. Now, now that's good and bad too, because they they had a, a famous dad, they had no rules, and they're in the Wild West. So, I mean, you know the story already. Uh, Jay Golden Kimball, where did he learn to swear? He learned it from my great-grandfather, David Kimball. I mean, th- th- these guys had no rules. What do you mean by that? And, and no limits. Well, there's no, who, who, who's going to go tell Heber C. Kimball's son or grandson to knock it off? So not only in the Wild West, where there's, there's fewer rules anyway, they were, they, they didn't have any, there was nobody who had direct authority over them. Their dad's the, Leader of the church, right? Yeah, they're 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 blue blood. Don't don't screw with them, you know. Uh, I mean, I know that like uh, uh, Christine Golden, you know, would would uh, go after Brigham Young to get Jay Golden a job, and he kept turning him down, you know. But but the brothers didn't turn him down. They brought him in. They looked after him. Okay, so so the kids, even if they grew up poor, were afforded a sort of amount of privilege, right? That other regular, like, let's say some saint from, you know, Sweden wouldn't have had. Unless... Well, well, look at Priscinda. She has two kids. One of them becomes the Bishop of Meadow. Joseph? Yeah. Joseph. Yeah. And the other one was left behind with uh, her husband in uh, in Missouri. So, so the one child that came with her ends up, you know, in a, in a position of relative... I mean, Bishop back then was a really big deal. And you were pretty much bishop, you know, nearly for life when when you were called. So that was a... She, she had another kid, uh, Celeste, uh, C-E-L-E-S-T-I-A, but she drowned in City Creek. Yeah, right. and that's the that's the story we talked about where Heber has this vision of... Um, so I can't remember if it's like a snake that swallows his children. And he brings all... When that baby dies, he brings all the kids together and he, you know, gives them all a blessing, right? So... So my impressions of Heber was that he was, even though he was busy and he was gone a lot, he was a sort of caring, kind man. But are there any, you know, Brigham, Brigham was a scary dude to cross. Was Heber mm-hmm. sort of the same way? Uh, no, but he had a big mouth. Explain that to me. Uh, he wasn't afraid to, to, to say stuff. Look, uh, I look at Brigham Young and I see a guy who's capable of killing people. I look at Heber. And, and I don't get that vibe. Yeah, yeah. Now yeah, that's not to me. say that it doesn't happen. Okay, I mean, great grandfathers and great grandsons. You know, uh, you know, th- there is that. But 
uh, I, I just don't get that vibe from Heber. He didn't seem to be that type. I mean, for, take for example, okay, uh, my great grandfather, David Patton Kimball. He, uh, falls in love with Caroline Williams. Caroline Williams is, is the daughter of Thomas Stephen Williams, my namesake. And, uh, he was a hero in the Mormon Battalion. Uh, but this guy was a wild boy, just like the, the Kimball brothers. Uh, they were made for each other. And so, uh, uh, David asked permission to marry her, gets, says no. The, the, all the brothers go to the house, you know, hold people to the walls with guns, and Caroline and, and David run off and elope. Okay. Uh, the word <laughs> in the family is, is that Brigham or, or Heber excommunicated Thomas Williams and Brigham had him killed. Wow. So he was kind of the good cop, bad cop. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm counting up Heber's sons here. It looks like he's got 30, he's got nearly 40, a little bit over 40 sons, right? I imagine. Uh, 40, 42, well, okay, I, I'm going by a, uh, a James Arrington skit uh, where Jay Golden would say, I had 42 brothers and 16 sisters, not a bastard among them, right? So uh, whether that's technically, technically true or not, uh, I'm not sure, but according to Stan Kimball, he said that there was... Uh, 40, 43 children, well, 65 children, so and I, 43 of them lived to maturity. I really am trying to get our listeners to understand, and trying to understand myself, how polygamy was lived on the ground. So imagining all these kids, obviously 40 boys running together is a gang, and I don't imagine that all of them got along, but how... Oh, if- no, no, no. This was a gang. So we're talking yeah. like if you were they a Kimball brother, just great. Really? Yeah, yeah. So just by you, blood, you, you were accepted it. in. I, uh, I'm telling you, uh, even the, the next generation down, uh, my great grandfather Quince. Uh, I have a couple speeches by him, and he just talks like, you know, these guys walk on water. These are my brothers. These are my cousins. He doesn't use the word cousins. He isn't. He, he uses the Mormon term. These are my brothers, and these are my brothers. And he just gushes when he talks about them. Now, what about the sisters? We don't hear much about them. Not much about the sisters. Why is that? Just because it's patriarchal Utah, or is it because? Probably. Yeah, I would. I would imagine that that's that's the case. You know, and and it's an area for for probably for more research, right? You know, there's probably yeah. journals and things that are out there, but they don't get the uh, they haven't gotten the attention. From the historians. I, I, I can go through my line from, from Heber to myself. It goes, you know, uh, Heber, David, Quince, Levon, Eldon, then myself. I have biographies of all of my grandfathers. I got zero of my grandmothers. Oh, that's terribly sad. And that's kind of the, the issues that we're dealing with in this series. Um, even with Brigham Young, some of his, you know, wives, like Susan Snively, there's hardly anything on her. And she was married to the prophet. And there's hardly anything because she didn't have children, which was well, another Well, they issue. lived these very isolated sorts of lives, right? I mean, we know a lot about some of these women because other women wrote in their diaries about them. And so you can kind of piece things together. If you're in a leadership position, you have all the minutes of the meetings they were in. They have all of the other folks who are cross writing about them and so you can you can gather a lot of information a lot of these women were it's a it's a it's a hand to mouth type of existence for a lot of them and uh you see 
you see this sisterhood that's created among them that's that's very powerful and the ministering that they do to each other and how they care for each other during childbirth and during sickness and death and but that's those almost out of, of necessity right there was no one else they weren't getting the kind you know that was that sisterhood was created specifically because of that and the relief society was the arm of that right where they they could reach out and they exercised spiritual gifts because they weren't coming from anywhere else and so there was a lot of blessing and anointing. They developed their own ordinances of washing and anointing for women prior to childbirth. And and there was a, a lot of that sort of thing that happened among the women. But there's not a lot of written material on specific individuals to be able to put together, a, you know, more than a kind of a sketch of, of what their lives were like. I, I'm a 20-year veteran in the Mormon book trade. Uh uh, there, there's still a male centric thing going on. So, uh, when I was Kurt Bench's, uh, book buyer, uh, I, I probably had 300 collectors I was calling every two weeks, uh, and selling stuff to. Two of them were women. Two. Uh, as a publisher now, when we publish women's studies, that the only one that's really moved is uh, Todd Compton's. So but written by a man. No offense to Todd, who I love. Written by a man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. I mean, women's studies is is a tough sell. So uh, not only are women but, not writing these things, they're not consuming them. And they're so- not consuming. Women in authority. I, I did the count uh, 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 this week on the sales, and the last four years that we had. Uh, women in authority in print sold 250 copies. 90 of them I blew out at discount, uh, because it stopped selling. Oh, that's terribly sad. Come on, listeners. That, that is what we're doing here. If we want to support women's voices, we have to support women's voices. If there was a, if there was a people that wanted to consume this, historians would step up and they would, they would put these things together. But I mean, look at the collections, you know, there's like, Women of Mormondom and things like that. There's a handful of books out there, and uh, there's certainly room for more. But we well, have to, Paula, have to find them. Okay, but, but Kelly Harley. Okay, let's, look, let's look at the men's stuff for just a moment. Take take the biography of uh, uh, George Q. Cannon. Okay, Mormons don't consume real history either. So yeah. the first print run of that book was two thousand copies, and I bought mine on the remainder table. Okay, so, work yeah, in the glory, we, they sold a million copies. Oh, golly. <laughs> uh, now, now, okay, George Buchanan should sell a ton. I mean, there's a ton of cannons around. They're as big as the Kimball family, right? Yeah, 2,000. Now, but, but reading uh, now, is hard. Reading is hard. Research is hard. We don't mm-hmm. want to do that. And then, you, then, and then, you know, it, it, you know, I, I kind of look at it as a, you know, as a, as the publicist for signature books. Uh, the unfortunate thing is, I'm kind of killing my customers. I, I, I do honest what I, what I feel is an honest. We do is an honest uh, portrayal of, of history, and then people read three or four books, and then they don't ever want to read another book again. Which is too bad because I think these stories are terrific. They're still amazing. Uh, the thing it's tied up it's tied up in faith it's tied up in your belief system it's tied up in all of those things uh, real history interrupts that narrative that you've adopted for 
the way you believe the church has always worked. And so you read a little bit and you, you walk away from it, right? I, I, I have a, a gentleman in my ward who talks about having read, you know, the, uh, risky stuff like Rough Stone Rolling, Rough Stone and, Rolling. And, and Susan Black's biography of Brigham Young, right? And it's like, it's, it's, there's, there's more, uh, I think in-depth kind of critical research that's out there, but people are afraid of it. Um, and when they read it, they don't want to read anymore. I think Tom's, Tom's dead right about that. Well, my, but, I've told my listeners one of the, the things that benefits me the most is history. Mormon history has broken my paradigm, which mm-hmm. needed to be broken because I wasn't a very nice Mormon. I was a very judgy Mormon. And history has kind of like set me free from that. And I think it's really helped me become a much better person. And it's hard. It's hard to have your worldview challenged. It's I think hard most to be Mormons changed. are afraid of that very thing. And so they don't go near it. Right. What is the B.H. Roberts quote that says, uh, truth can handle scrutiny? I thought that was, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Hubie Brown. <laughs> Hubie Brown. Thank you. Hubie Brown. I've been reading B.H. Roberts yeah. a lot lately. Sorry about that. Yes. Hubie Brown. Um, so let's go back to Huber really quick. So we have his wives. We know that, um, he, that he did his best and, uh, is there anything else that we know about how polygamy was lived on the ground and how Heber influenced polygamy? Um, that's a good question. Tell us about Blate. Can you tell us more about her? Well, what I know about Blate, I mean, I've read uh, Stan Kimball's stuff, and, and he has an article that's really terrific. Uh, Valate and Heber would write letters to each other before polygamy, and they were really boring. Uh, I'm, I'm <laughs> you know, really dry. I'm, I, I arrived. I'm here. I hope everything's well. Bye. And then the second polygamy kicks in, Heber's writing gushing love letters to Valate. It's terrific, right? <laughs> Really? So it's this total switch. He's having to woo her and win her back, you know, or, or keep her uh, um, uh, in his uh, graces. He doesn't so, want to lose her. Yeah, and, and Stan Kimball did an article. It's probably in Mormon History Association. I, I read it like 25 years ago. But, uh, yeah, you know, there, there's there's those kinds of things. Uh, uh, it, did it, Heber have a favorite? S- did he have a favorite wife that we know of? Why uh, was, was clearly the favorite, but then he had this tail end last wife that he had nine kids with. Yeah. That um, happened to Brigham Young too, right? His last wife. We're, t- we're talking, this is, um, Mary Fielding Smith? Smithies. Oh. Smith, Smithies. Oh, yeah, Mary Smithies. Got it. Okay. Uh, he didn't, he didn't have uh, any children with Mary Fielding, I don't believe. No, he didn't have any children with her. So Mary Smithies, he marries, on, in 1857 in January. Yep. Okay. Wow, you have your notes. I do. I, That's great. <laughs> I do my my research. Um. So and they would have five kids. Yeah. Oh, five kids. Okay. So um, tell me about his children. Are there any? Kimball is a famous name. So who who is to note? Spencer W. Well, Kimball. Where does he come from? He comes from the Woolly Line. Uh and. Uh, Kimball, Spencer Kimball is my great-grandfather's cousin and they're kind of the family that stayed in the church. A lot of the brothers didn't stay. Why not? My, 
my dad, uh, because of the wild, wild west that they, you know, that they lived in. So we're talking uh, these, these kids, um, when you say gang, this is fascinating to me because this is something I didn't consider. Another part about have, you know, being spread out and having so many wives is sort of neglectful parents too, not just neglectful husbands. So these kids are wild. They're causing trouble and getting into trouble, I'm assuming. And only two, uh, live the principle. Well, they didn't have rules, so when you say getting in trouble, they weren't getting in any trouble. Uh, but but they were they weren't necessarily doing good things. They were Making all smoking trouble, and maybe. swearing. I mean, you you know the story. You know Jay Golden. Look at Jay Golden. But okay. he came back to the church, right? He, he's yeah, and and he's one of them. You know, uh, uh, Solomon Kimball is one of them. My my dad was the only one of his brothers that that was really Mormon. And my dad used to go around to the Kimball family. My, my dad was the Kimball family historian, uh, when President Kimball was alive. And he would, he would track down the Kimball families and then he'd go and baptize them. <laughs> he he so, didn't serve a mission. Um, uh, Spencer, uh, okay, this, you're gonna erase this, but this is a fun story. Um, okay, so you don't want this then? No, you can, you can include this if you want to, but I, I, it's, it's, it's too, too tangential. But Spencer Kimball would write to, all of the Kimball cousins that were in World War II that were that were soldiers, and he was sending books, sending letters, and he was trying to encourage them to come back from the war and serve missions and be Latter Day Saints, right? And my dad was one of them. Uh, 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 um, my dad felt a lot of guilt for not serving a mission, so he went around to his Kimball cousins because my dad had a, a degree in history. And, uh, he would go around to his Kimball cousins and he would find out who the, who, who were out of the church, which was most of them. And he would try and bring them back. And he was pretty successful at it. Well, where's Heber at? You know, Heber is giving all this self-righteous rhetoric to, you know, these saints out in Utah. Where's he at with his own family? He was an absentee dad. I He's mean, an absentee dad. Uh, you know, okay, so they had these households, and there'd be, you know, four women in the house, and there'd be a common room, and as Bill was saying, there'd, there'd just be pandemonium in the wintertime because there's, they couldn't go outside. In fact, one of the sons, they were told not to even leave the compound, and one of the sons said later that uh, he never wants to see a, a, a rock wall ever again, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but yeah, it's, it's pandemonium in, the, in these homes. And so when these guys got a chance to get out, like to go up to Meadowville, um, they did. And, uh, the, the moms had a lot of influence, uh, much more so than, than, than Heber. Uh, but they did, they did have, but he was the glue uh, in a way that, that bind them together. Uh, but right. And they're all related to each other. The challenge that they had other. was they saw how little their moms had yeah. a relationship other than, you know, Making them pregnant, there was very little. And when he came, I mean, they referred to him as as their lord. I mean, they 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 used that phrase, or the father Kimball, or or our lord came, and they would cater to his whims. And he would come for a short time, and he would leave. And most of the time, they were on their own. Uh, and so you the, you could see this discrepancy between what he would speak from the pulpit and how he behaved as a father, and that. That's hard to consume. Uh, you, you, you end up walking away from that. Do you think there but, was any, I mean, was there any resentment or did he have sons that just, you know, have a glowing report of their childhood from him? 
I, I think the sons kind of look to each other. Yeah. Uh, for example, Solomon Kimball, uh, my great uncle, uh, he would write about his big brother, David. And write, he wrote a book called Thrilling Experiences. It's a hoot. Uh, it's hard to find, but uh, um, they, they really looked at each other. So if you want to look at, at who the more famous or interesting kids are, uh, it's Solomon who wrote, who pulled together the uh, biography of Heber Kimball and then turned uh, uh, had it commissioned by Tullidge. Tullidge leaves the church. So he, he has the brothers gather at the graveyard and they, they transfer it over to uh, their their nephew, uh, Orson F. Whitney. Um, uh, and, and if you look at that biography, the first edition, there's a ton of Solomon Kimball stuff in the back that Heber, that Spencer Kimball took out when he reprinted it in the 50s. Wow. Okay. Um, so Solomon, uh, D- David was one of the three supposed rescuers of the Martin Hancock Company. Um, Solomon might have manufactured a lot of that. <laughs> um, and then Jay Golden. Uh, and then w- William, to some degree, and Helmar. But beyond that, the brothers and sisters are pretty quiet. So before we go, I want to make a few statements, some takeaways, and I want you guys to tell me true or false on these, okay? If that's, mm-hmm. if you can do that. So Try. one of, the, one of the takeaways is that, that we can get from this is that polygamy wasn't just challenging to the faith and to the lives of the wives. It was also challenging to the children and the grandchildren and the great grandchildren. Is that accurate? Uh, um, I don't know about the great grandchildren, but I know the grandkids. Um, uh, uh, yeah, that not a lot of them, none of them practiced polygamy and a lot of them left the church. In the Kimball family. Yeah, my, my family has much the same experience. They come through the Brown and the Draper lines, and they, um, same thing. A lot of them become, you know, they live down in southern Utah. They're minors and those sorts of things, but their, their engagement with the church was pretty minimal. So that's my second takeaway, that polygamy wasn't really as sustainable for building the kingdom as it was intended. Is that fair, or is that too broad? You know, I, I'm, I'm thinking about my ancestors, and, I'm, and, I, and I don't have a lot of them that were actually not polygamist. And um, the, the only family that seemed to have really, like, blossomed and had tons and tons of kids, with, kids was, the, was the Jesse and Smith family. Um, he had nine, uh, uh, he had five or six wives. Each one of the wives had nine kids. Each one of the, each one of the kids had nine kids kind of thing. You know, it just blew up. It's, it's probably the largest Mormon family out there. Yeah. Uh, I think but, from a, from a, like a, but, but otherwise uh, no. Yeah. From a, from a kind of just a population standpoint, on average, plural wives had fewer children than monogamous wives. And so right. just in terms of growth of the population, it didn't do that. You do have kind of the two ends of the spectrum, right? A lot of the general authorities of the church are the result of these kind of polygamous dynasties. And they they are there. But you also have a large group of that kind of, uh, you know, Jack Mormon population that also comes from that same, that same group of people. Um, and so, so I think, I think you can, I don't think you can make a blanket statement, but I think it's safe to say it didn't have the result that perhaps it was uh, um, sold as, it was marketed as, uh, 
by the by the folks who were the the early proponents. Yes, and, and what it what it did do is this. Uh, uh, I mean, I hear these guys at BYU talk about you know Joseph Smith and his dynastic wives and stuff, but in in Utah, the you know polygamy made everybody related to everybody. I mean, I'm related to every Mormon twice. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. My, my wife's from San Pete, which kind of concerned me. We're we're in the same orchard, but at least we're on different rows. <laughs> You know, yeah, you know I'm, what I mean? I'm related to everybody. I'm from in, San Pete too, so hey. Everybody in Beaver County is related to me. Well, so yeah. this is what I'm saying. We have Doctrine and Covenants 132 talking about, you know, this is to multiply and replenish the earth. We have Orson Pratt saying the same thing, that this is to bring more, you know, spirits, more faithful spirits. But we know that that's not no. true. Bill, you, you gave out that statistic kind of in passing, but there's been research that shows that polygamous families actually have less children per Per coupling, I guess, than yeah. a monogamous relationship would. And now, of course, Heber C. Kimball can claim sixty-four kids or whatever, but um, his wife, 40, forty-three wives, exactly. Right? So that's that's certainly well below the average. Yeah, it's just it's one point what. <laughs> so, yeah. so I think it's safe to say that it didn't fulfill that sort of prophecy, at least not in the way that they wanted it to. No. No, it was a disaster all the way around. It, it really was. Well, great. Is there anything else you guys want to say about this topic? I, I mean, this is, I, I can go on with more stories, but I mean, this is, this is really fun. Uh, I, I think this is a fun, fun history. And, and, and this is one of the things that makes us as Latter-day Saints unique. And, uh, it, it's, if you talk to Latter-day Saints, especially the old school Latter-day Saints, the first thing they sit and talk about is who who are they related to, and how are is there is there some sort of tie between the you know the two of you, and it, it's it's kind of fun, uh, and if not uh, you know if you're a convert they say oh well now you're, you're you can do this now with us <laughs> kind of thing, but uh, but as far as you know being practical it was a disaster, well, my- and it it made it made you know I think about my. My great aunts, my or my, I think of as mothers, my my great grandfathers' uh, wives. I, th- I I think of them as mothers, and uh, the the heartache that they went through uh, for all of this. Um, well, a family story that really kind of encapsulates that, right? So, my great grandfather had four wives, and what he did every Sunday was he would go to pick up a different wife to ride to church with him and uh this is the this, the family story and uh but if they weren't ready he would just go get his first wife and she would be the one to go and so my great grandmother phoebe had a new baby uh, several times in a row it was her turn the baby wasn't ready and he would just leave and go get his first wife and and she'd find her own way to church and so the story is that he came one time she had everything ready to go and just as they're ready to leave, the baby uh, has an accident in his pants, and he goes, okay, that's it. And so she whips the diaper off the baby and slaps it across his clothes and tells them, as soon as you're clean, I'll be ready to go, and I can go with you. Oh, my so, gosh. <laughs> so it's a great story, but it also, right. I mean, no, no one else has those kinds of stories, but at the same time, it kind of lays a... Uh, emphasizes this kind of lonely existence that they had, that that was the big deal for them, was being able to ride to church with their husband instead of their other wives. And so 
So it's a, it's kind of a bittersweet story. Yeah, and and one of the main purposes in this project for me is to show Latter-day Saint women especially who struggle with this concept that, you know, the potential that we might have to live it. Um first of all to kind of take the fear away from it to show what a disaster it is. And second of all, I really want everyone to understand how I really believe that this principle has shaped who we are as a people today. I mean, we come from generations of this stuff. I think there's something to be said with the rhetoric that we heard, you know, in the 1850s from Brigham Young about monogamy being an evil and men having these lusts. I think we see that rhetoric mirrored today. We just police it differently now. We police it with women's modesty and, and women's behavior and being the gatekeepers of virtue. So I think there's that- a lot of bad that's a result of it in terms of how we view and, and have, uh, uh, participate with women in the church. But by the same token, it, it really binds us together. It managed to consolidate into a very short period of time a sense that we are we are a unique tribe similar to Jews who took thousands of years to to accomplish the same thing. And so it did consolidate us. It did bring us together. But we're dealing with the aftermath of that still today. You know, the Latter-day Saints know that polygamy happened generally. They don't know a lot about it. I bought uh, uh, In Sacred Loneliness when it first came out. And, uh, I mean, again, 11 of these of these women I, I view as mothers. Uh, and uh, I put it on my mom's bookshelf. And it sat there for about six months. And I came home or came to visit my mom. And the book was gone. And I go, Mom, where's the book? And she goes, oh, that book. If Joseph Smith did those things... He was an evil man. And, uh, you know, that was a, you know, I, that put me back on my heels because my mom is a super faithful Latter-day Saint and still is. And that's the last we ever discussed it. You know, the best way to hide stuff from Mormons is to publish it. <laughs> they, 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 they don't know the stories. Most Latter-day Saints still do not know that Joel Smith was a plugmist. They, they, they stick it on Brigham. Right. And and that's another reason why I still do this pod this podcast. Why polygamy? It's not like Lindsay's obsessed. She's into polygamy. Polygamy was what changed my life. I mean, when I found out, I was I was twenty five when I found out Joseph Smith had plural wives. Had no idea up until that point. And I and I was a reader, you know. And so it, it's life changing. But like I said, I'm really grateful for that paradigm. In fact, people come to me and they say, "I really struggle with Joseph Smith. How do I make it right?" And I say, I'm glad that Joseph Smith was messed up. I'm glad our history is messed up. Because if not, I would have been that Mormon beating myself up and, you know, hurting other people. So I'm glad for it. Had we have been perfect and had a clean slate, then I think I would really have to go back and rethink some of my recent choices. But it's really, really set me free. And, and I'm really grateful for that, actually. It, it, it does lead people down the path of them understanding that these people were humans. Yeah. And, and what a relief. Absolutely. I totally agree yeah. with that. Well, I want to thank you guys so much for coming on today. That was a fun discussion. And hopefully we got a little bit more insight. Um, do you guys want to shout out any additional reading for the listeners? Oh, yeah. Uh, Bill, do you mind if I go? No, go ahead. Okay. So uh, for Heber Kimball, I would recommend his biography by Orsif Whitney, uh, also the Stan Kimball biography. 
there's a brand new biography on Volate that I have not had a chance to look at, uh, but I, I promise to get on top of it. Uh, I, and I, I, it's probably faith promoting, but uh, I still should have it in, the, in my repertoire. Uh, in Sacred Loneliness by Todd Compton is the Absolutely. short biographies of all the wives of uh, many of the wives of Joseph Smith. Uh, Nauvoo Polygamy by uh, George Smith. In the back of the book, it lists all the men who entered polygamy in Nauvoo and all of their wives and how old they were, and it extends it out into the Utah period. It's essentially 180, 190 men and 700 women in the Nauvoo period and goes out to like 1300 into the Utah period. Uh, just that chart alone is worth the price of admission. Uh, he also goes through all the wives and, uh, he argues that there's, uh, 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 probably more than 40. Um, and then, uh, what else, Bill? Those are the, I mean, those are the big, those are the big ones. I mean, uh, the, there's the new books on polygamy, Brian Hale series on polygamy and, uh, you know, modern Mormon polygamy. Some of that's pretty fascinating because they'll go back and, and explain kind of where they think they've came, come from. And you get some interesting stories around that as well. Let me give Brian a shout out. Um, and it, it's a two-sided shout out. I, I really like what Brian's doing because, uh, the, it, cause there is Brian, uh, with the argument. Anytime I do anything or I write anything, I know that Brian's going to hold the mirror up to me and make me face it. Yeah. And that's terrific. And uh, you can say what you will about him, but his research is really okay. intense. But um, even if you don't agree with his conclusions, he does his research. Does his research. Uh, but with, with history, it's important to, that we don't care what the outcome is. We don't yeah. care what happened. We just want to know what happened. And I don't think that's going on with Brian. Yeah, he he has. You'll get all of the information, and then he draws a conclusion that's different from all of the all of the data well, he has. So he uh, wants he wants it to be a certain way. Stan Kimball does the same thing. Uh, my my cousin Stan. Uh, if you read his his biography of Heber Kimball, uh, he he's trying to rescue the church. Um, so. Well, like I tell my listeners, um, I, I put my biases up front because I think we all have biases. And uh, once you know what they are, you can take the research and do what you will with them. And also, while we're talking about female uh, historians writing about women, the new book, The Polygamous Wife's Writing Club by Paula Kelly Harleen is out. She highlights 29 uh, random Utah women that were not married to leaders. So it's terrific. Awesome. Yeah, that's so. Um, again, thanks so much for coming on, guys. And thank you for listening to another episode in the year of polygamy series on the feminist Mormon housewives podcast. One, one more shout out. Okay. We need another women in authority. We need the next generation. Okay. Someone out there start writing. Let's do it. Mine's, m- mine is only on podcasts. So I, I know a publisher. <laughs> yeah, I know. We know we got hookups to a publisher now. So get writing, get researching, get reading. Thanks guys. Thank, thanks thanks everybody. Me.